Okay, good to, good to see everyone. So we are speaking, uh, we're on busy with a series on 1 Corinthians. So, and this evening we're speaking about disunity in the church. Uh, and you'll see a few of the orange words highlighted is uh, wisdom of God or man, um, con- uh, to confront, fights, more fights. Um, and, and so that is kind of the underlying tone of what we will be addressing this evening. So last week, Anna gave us a, a really good foundation, a strong foundation for the series, and I can really encourage you to go and listen to, to that. Um, and so, so that was our introduction to Corinthians. And uh, one of the, the core things that came out was when we be- believe the gospel, it changes everything. And then on our part, everything needs to change. We have an identity in God as believers, and God is faithful to sustain us. So all through the Quorum Church was a very messy and an immature church. Um, God saw them as uh, part of his church, a holy church, and, um, and he w- will be faithful to, to change them. So... Yeah, um, it actually shows uh, in a big part how this church is the workmanship of God. And, and again, I think that that will be a little bit of a theme that I, I hope comes out and that we develop this evening. Um, so before we, we really get into our text for the evening, just, just a little bit of background again on the Corinthians. And the reason for that is because we're going to speak about this a lot and there might be some themes that continue to to, to pop up um, that you will recognize um, as, we, as we go through this letter. So maybe, maybe I can ask out of the audience and from what you've heard last week or, or what you know of the Corinth Church, um, if you can throw out a few things that you know, historic background, anything, anyone in the audience. Can you remember something from last week? Go for it. Yes, okay. Okay, that sounds like, like the Praetorians more than the... <laughs> but yes, um, spot on. Um, so I think that that falls in... Uh, they, they said to Corinthianize was, uh, was a word for... To say if you were sexually immoral like the Corinthians. Uh, so, so exactly, that, that fits in there. Okay, um, well, a few things. Paul wrote the book... Um, he wrote it about 51 to 52 AD, and we know this because we have in Acts 18, uh, Gallio was proconsul um, in Corinth, and who, who lived there, and in that time specifically, that is when Paul uh, planted the church. So he stayed there for a year and a half, um, and, and that, that is how the church originated. The geography, history, inhabitants. Um, so it's a, a Greek city, and it was destroyed by the Romans 164 BC, and 100 years later, Julius Caesar um, decided to make Corinth great again. Um, so, uh, so he rebuilt it. Um, the capital uh, of the province, uh, yeah, it was the capital of the province. So at the time it was um, Achaia, and so it, it, but it's modern-day Greece. And what's interesting is Athens is way more uh, known today. It, it's, it's, it's a more popular site. 
But um, for the time, um, Corinth was the capital. And we'll, we'll get some understanding into that. So Athens might have been seen as the intellectual hub where Corinth was seen as more um, the economic hub for, uh, for that province. Um, and the reason for this is because it was built on an isthmus. Um, so it, it tied the Peneplesian Peninsula to the mainland of Greece. And uh, what made it interesting, it's only five kilometers or 5.6 kilometers. Um, uh, so, and the way they use this is the ships going from east to west would rather stop, stop there. And if it was small enough, they would actually carry the whole ship over that, that piece of land. Um, uh, it, there was a proper road for that, and, and that's what they would do. Um, or they would just take the cargo. So specifically, this also, I think, brought out a lot of debauchery um, and a lot of loose living. If you have a, a coastal town and with sailors having dangerous lives and, and um, some extra money and way to spend it. Um, so another thing is the church... Um, they, it wasn't a church who had really nobles or, um, uh, yeah, I think that that might be the best way to put it. It was a, a city where you could um, make a living, where you could, there was, there was room for up, upward mobility. Uh, everything wasn't set. So a lot of import of slaves, a um, lot of merchants, a lot of goods, um, philosophies, Roman soldiers, uh, a cultural hub, uh, a cosmopolitan city. And um, important to Rome, they had the, the, there was games there that was almost like our Olympian games every second year, um, the Eastmian games. And um, yeah, so I, I think that's, that's a baseline. Maybe one more thing. Um, there was um, quite a, a, a large con or considerable Jewish population. And we know this, this is also where Paul went um, for business meeting Priscilla and Aquila after they've been thrown out of Rome. Um, and, and so there is a Jewish population, although it is a Greek town. Okay, so what I want you to do actually in every session is try and listen out for hints of who is the audience or something that's specific, anything that's repeated, not so much in this, this evening session, but um, uh, whenever we read our text, I think uh, there's a few things that you, can, that you can try and listen out for, what stands out to you in the text. Uh, we're going to read from 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10 to 17. So you can open your Bibles there. I'm going to give us a second or two for that. I'll read for us from verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there is no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did also baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, 
but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So day is the word of God. Um, so what I, I want to kind of just drag us into this, uh, again looking maybe at the literary context a little bit, and uh, just reflecting again, what is this... Uh, this literature that we're reading? Is it, is it wisdom literature? Is it a narrative? What, what, what are we reading? Who, who knows? It's, it's a letter. And what makes a letter um, significant as, as a genre? So it has an occasion. Letters are documents of occasion. It addresses something or someone specific and at a certain time. Um, and, and so we don't find a full um, systematic exposition necessarily in, in all our letters, but it, it addresses certain uh, things. And what makes this letter, I think, actually a little bit more fun, at least for me, First um, Corinthians, is it really gives us great markers of what Paul is addressing, and you can even see it in the way he develops his arguments. Um, so this letter starts off, and uh, the first thing he says, it has been reported to me um, that they are divisions. And then in chapter 5, we have again a report of sexual immorality. And then from chapter 7 onwards, we have uh, many instances of Paul saying, I'm responding to questions that you asked in a, in a previous letter. And, and so it is really just marked out for us uh, what happens where in the letter. Um, but this being a letter, um, I find it quite interesting. And I really did a great job last week of just not skipping the introduction and, and, and uh, pointing out to us there's a repeated word called. You are a called uh, uh, community as a church and how you should act now um, from that. But in writing a letter, after introductions, uh, what, what do you usually find? If you had to write a 16 chapter, very long letter, what would you put first? If it, if it was a love letter maybe, um, how, would you, how would you open um, yeah, okay, so th that forced me a little bit uh, in the introduction, but I, th I think you would, you would open with what is really important. Um, you would kind of get it out there and then, then go to that. Um, so I'm going to give us an example. Um, so uh, it, this is, this is uh, yeah, the, uh, it's directed to dear Lindy. I don't know who this Lindy person is, but um, it's, it's directed to you. Uh, so it says, dear Lindy, I hope my message finds you well. We have been friends for some time now, and I have become increasingly jealous of our time, of, of your company, and fond of our time together. I can hide my affections no longer for you. Will you avail yourself to my company this coming holiday? for I want to settle terms of a relationship with you. So, uh, uh, bit of a spoof, bit of a spoof. But, um, but the fact is, if you, if you have something serious to say, um, you state your intentions, and maybe you, you can build on that. And I find it quite interesting, right after the introduction, this is what Paul decides to open with, um, church unity. Um, another thing that's interesting about a letter is we don't, it's like if you walk into a house and somebody's on the phone and you're trying to figure out to whom they are speaking and what they're speaking about. You can't hear both sides of the conversation. You just have the person on the phone and then you're trying to figure out, ah, okay, it is, it is Tani Kuba or wherever. You, you can figure that out. 
And when we read the letter, or any of our letters, there's clues of what is going on. Who's on the other side? Who is our audience? So just, just a few preliminary things said in that. Now we get to this unity. Um, and when I think of the letter to the Praetorians, uh, and I think about us, it is humbling to admit but sin has the potential to make us better at war than we are at peace. And I think um, that there's probably no one in this room who had a completely conflict-free week this week. In any one of you, no conflict this week, N nothing. Um, so it's almost to, to be human. I, I've had uh, uh, some of it this week, and um, that, is, um, that is the normal human condition to have conflict. Uh, sin causes us to be better at division than we are at unity. Sin can cause us to be critical, argumentative, ready to take offense, ready to debate. Um, and then it should not surprise us that this church struggles with division. And if we just look at ourselves, um, the people who are here, we come from different backgrounds. Uh, Daniel is basically an, an African Rhodesian. He never wears shoes. Um, and um, we have people from different denominations. We have different wealth classes. And, and so it's sometimes also difficult just to relate with someone if you don't like their interests. Um, so it's very easy to become separated. Now, this is already uh, a thing that it's difficult for us to connect. Um, outside of that, then we have that the DNA of sin is selfishness. It says, I want to be in control. I want it my way. I want recognition. I want power. I want to be Lord of my life. And so what is it that can keep us from this danger? What is it that has the power to unify us, the power to make this place not a place of disunity, but a place of remarkable grace and a remarkable love? What can do that? And maybe it is important to know that unity is one of the things that, um, that the Lord ordained um, the love between brothers he has ordained as um, one of the powerful living arguments for the truth of the gospel um, for himself. So we're, we're an apologetic church. I, I like to say that a lot, that we, we like to evangelize and we like to give apologetics to things. When last could you say, have you looked at the church or have you looked at my church doesn't that look odd? It should look odd to the world that we have such unity. It, it should be almost miraculous uh, that we have such unity among ourselves. And, um, and yet this, this is not always the case. Um, I want to give us these, these verses, maybe uh, specifically John 13, 35. It says, by this will all men know that you are my disciples. You have love for one another. You have sacrifice and care for one another. So it is, it is Christ who calls us to this unity. And then we should, again, maybe not find it shocking if we come with humble hearts, if you really do some introspection 
and you really consider yourself that there is division in Corinth. And this is probably so because um, if, if you look to it, you have that same propensity. It should be familiar to you um, to want to be argumentative. So our setup for this passage, uh, it starts in verse 11. It has been reported to Paul by Chloe or, or those of Chloe. And we don't know too much about Chloe. I don't want to stand still. We, we can go in maybe in the Q&A into the personalities. Um, but it is more the intent of this that is important here. And that is that there is quarreling among the brothers. And so Paul is writing to speak into the circumstance. And what he writes uh, in the first two chapters, actually I think he, it, it's almost, he becomes lyrical. For me, he sings it almost for four chapters straight. But, um, but for at least the first two chapters, uh, he gives a powerful argument for the foolishness of man and the stunning wisdom of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and as I reflected on this, I actually really struggled because the piece of this unity goes for four chapters straight, and I cannot do four chapters. We'll be here till next week. Um, so I, I decided to settle with the piece that's really directly after the introduction. Um, but what I've, what I've come to see in this section or in this piece is that I, I don't think it, there's a, another piece in Scripture that so confronts us on the topic of unity, uh, that doesn't uh, try and put in a few buts, but really calls us to, to the sense of unity. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think it is, it's a very important topic for us this evening. And, and we think we, we understand it. We think that, listen, unity isn't really a problem, but if we look at the place where it's supposed to work the best, our families, how much disunity do we have there? And as Christians, isn't that a shame that, you, that you're a Christian, but you, you struggle within your own family? On top of that, um, this is a family, and how much disunity we can have amongst one another as well. So when we read this, this section that I read, when we start from um, verse 10 to 17, it, it has two bookends. Um, in the first one, in, in verse 10, it's said more softly. But Paul appeals, he makes an appeal, um, and it, it's the bookends. And he says, um, and, and well, I hope you notice this, that the bracketed appeals is for the centrality of the power of the gospel. So he's speaking about disunity, but he's already kind of throwing in hints of the gospel. Why, why would he do that? Um, that is a bit of a question, and, and I think that is our case study this evening. What is interesting, Paul does not uh, make an appeal on the authority of his apostleship, something that he would sometimes do. Um, and why doesn't he do it? Because he himself is implicated in this text. If we could have gone to chapter 4, uh, you would recognize this church has beef with Apollos, not with Apollos, with Paul himself. He's in one of the factions. They don't like him. They've got a big problem with him. So how do you speak to people that already find you problematic? Um, that is the task that Paul is set, set up to do. So what does Paul appeal to? He appeal, it says, I appeal by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree 
and that there be no divisions among you, but that the, you are united in the same mind and the same judgment. Um, and if you really do your homework, if you go through this text, then you would see that the mind he's talking about is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the most precious possession that the church has, is the gospel. And, and so sometimes I think we, we just know the story, just tick, tick, tick it off. But the gospel needs to be applied, and I think that is a part of the task that Paul attempts uh, in, in this section. Um, maybe to, to, to emphasize this, uh, I, want, I want to read this. It says, there is nothing more precious, nothing more needed, nothing more powerful, nothing more essential, nothing that should be more central than the message of hope and life and security in the crucified and risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the gospel um, takes things away. And it has the power um, to pull us away from our selfishness, to pull us away from our prickliness, our irritatedness, uh, to pull us away from the tendency to be critical and want to debate and want to win because we get drawn into the glory, the preciousness, the beauty, the essentiality of the gospel. The gospel becomes more important to us than all these other things would be. And if Paul here is speaking about one mind, um, in the positive, uh, he, he says we should... Um, let me just get this here. Well, uh, may, uh, maybe I should first say this. He states it, uh, that we must guard the gospel against anything that will divide us. If anything comes to the level um, that only the gospel could be, um, and if that would um, bring division, then we should, we should put that in a secondary place. The, the paradigm of community is the church, um, in the church is the gospel. So what that means, the standard, the standard how we relate to one another is you put Christ between people. And uh, to make that point is how does God see you? Does he see you as in your sinful state or does he see you through Christ? Um, are you washed in Christ? Are you part of Christ? And, and in that sense, this is how the gospel is also applied. That we need to look how our brother is in the lens, through the lens of the gospel. The reason we relate to one another as we do is because of the gospel. The reason we worship as we do is because of the gospel. And the reason we relate to the outside world, to the rest of Pretoria, is again because of the gospel. Um, the gospel is our motivation, it is our hope, and it is our goal. We have nothing else. And my question is, do you believe that this evening? Or is there an and? Is there, is there a critical theory? Is there uh, a Black Lives Matter? Is there... Um, is there anything that one needs to add? Um, and maybe we, we say we believe this, but we don't act it. Uh, we have our little idols. So, unity of mind uh, does not mean um, arguing for uniformity. And later in this letter, we see this, that Paul 
he shows how God shows the, the different um, gifts and um, the different uh, callings um, in the church. And as one body, uh, we, we see this in 1 Corinthians 12. And it gives us, st- different people of the body will give us different perspectives on the gospel. And it will be healthy for us to understand it as a whole. Uh, maybe an example of this is there's a Sri Lankan theologian um, named Vinoh Ma, uh, yeah, Ramakandra. Ramakandra, it shouldn't be that difficult, but it is. Um, and uh, I, I have nothing, I don't know this guy, but if I, if I read his book, I realize he, I've got a lot to learn from him. Um, so the, the one book is Gods That Fail. And the reason, um, so he, is, uh, he has a lot of insight about idolatry, and the reason for that is because he lived in a culture of overt idolatry, very open idolatry for years. And, and so he's come to some insights, and uh, he can guide us in understanding covert idolatry, and that's more of what we experience. We don't name the gods, but we do worship them. Um, and so he's got a gift, and... And dependent on who you listen to, he says things that I can't. Um, Tim Keller might say things that I can't. And dependent on to whom you listen, there is different, different gifts. Now, the, the next thing I kind of want to, to look at, and again coming to our passage, is our passage, I think, is a little bit of a case study. What happens when you remove the gospel? So I've repeated the gospel so many times, I'm, I'm worried that it's fallen on on deaf ears. But, but what happens um, when we don't have the gospel central? And I think there's, there's three things. The first thing we see with this church is they are quarreling. They are fighting. Um, and, and so what does the gospel do? The gospel, God uses the gospel to rescue us from ourselves, us from us. Um, if we are not careful, we start quarreling and fighting. And again, um, Paul isn't scared of, of putting up a fight. But if there's issues, uh, we must make sure that if, if it's secondary, that they do not rise to the level of destroying the unity of the body of Christ. Um, if we use the gospel, it's not that these things aren't important that we many times debate but it must not cause breaking. And I've got an example of this in, in my own life. I used to diligently, I want to uh, basically say religiously, um, go to uh, evangelism course on Wednesday evenings. Um, uh, this was a few years back. It is uh, EE3. It's a very rigid, direct course. But it is, it is quite effective. And what we, we used to do is we went into the city and we knocked on doors and we spoke to people on the, the streets. And so many people were willing to give their lives to God. Uh, we even tried to do that in the suburbs, didn't get the same response. Um, but so many people were willing to the point where I, per default, I said, listen, I explained the gospel to you, but I don't think you understand it. Let, let's go through this again. And there was uh, a church that we connected them to. There was two young guys who went into ministry. They actually took a block, um, and they started a church in the bottom part. 
and all the flats going up that basically looked like Corinth, um, not a very, very good place to be, full of very bad things going on. And, um, but the people needed to pass that bottom section to go out. And, and so they had a church there f- for a whole block. That's, that's a bigger church than this, maybe 300 people or so. Um, so these were really mature Christians. And what they're doing in, in E3 is this evangelism course. They'll give you ways to defend certain parts because you're going to engage with different cultures, different people. Um, so they teach you a little bit of apologetics. And one evening, the topic of um, baptism came up. And such a fight broke out, uh, people not wanting to continue in anything else because um, credo baptism, uh, that's baptism by faith. Out of, you need to be an adult to believe, to, to be baptized. Um, that needed to be accepted for the gospel. Um, and it was for me so strange because here are people that is quite mature. That it's not people who comes for a good show. It's people who give up their lives to go park your car in a dodgy place in the city and, and go share the gospel with people that's maybe not your, um, your granny whom you love. Um, and, and so this, was, this, this is quite a thing where, where we can start to disagree and we start to fight over things that's not worth it. The second thing that happens is personalities become central. We see Paul says here, uh, what I mean is that each of one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Christ, I follow Cephas, I follow Apollos. And here should be a warning that there is a danger when you sit under somebody's teaching or you really respect somebody um, or if they've had a significant impact in your life that you raise them um, to the place of Christ, not maybe intentionally, but that you make an idol of that person. And so we must guard, we must continuously be faithful in reminding ourselves, we must preach it and and teach it and encourage one another to say um, in our fellowship that whatever we have, anything good, anything that we enjoy, any good gift, any grace is from Jesus Christ, from no one else. We should not attach our identity, security, our spiritual sense um, of well-being to a man. We must not, we cannot, and we should not. Um, We cannot create factions under people. So maybe maybe it is is necessary to just emphasize that, that there might have been people in your life um, that that you look up to, but you must recognize that God has, has put those people um, in your life, uh, any person that, that has such an impact is an incarnation of the gospel zeal of Jesus, um, and, and that power is in Christ. So the third thing is um, and it, it's not so direct in this passage, but it's definitely there uh, that the things of the Lord begin to be used for a personal agenda. And I think the clue is we, we read this party spirit and we can see this party spirit. If there's a union, if you work with, a, if you're in a business and you have a union, you know the bullying power that they have. They can, as a faction, they, they can create a lot of trouble. So there, there is that to be um, looked at. And 
And yet Paul says, what I mean, that each of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, and I follow Cephas, or even I follow Christ. And Paul doesn't put that there in as a positive thing. The I follow Christ is also a faction. And, and maybe you can think that is, that is one of the better groups. But what might be going on there is a spiritual one-upmanship. It's something like saying, oh, you follow Cephas. Um, well, I, I follow Christ. Um, and sometimes we hear that between denominations. Sometimes we even hear people saying, no, I'm not a Christian. Um, I'm a follower of Christ. And, um, and not necessarily open to hearing what you have to say. So, so these are the three things that can happen. Um, and if we're honest, these are temptations for all, all of us. It is surely tempting for us to give ourselves more to conflict than we do peace. If you don't believe it, go read uh, chapter 3. Um, Paul really makes a point of that, that that is human. It is surely tempting to attach ourselves to particular personalities. And shockingly, it is tempting to all of us to somehow use the truth of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ for some kind of personal attention, personal power, personal recognition, or personal gain. So where does all of this lead? And Paul says it leads to that the gospel is emptied of its power. The gospel becomes useless. We, we preach nothing, um, and we will not be changed. If we, if we look at verse 13, um, Paul responds with rhetorical questions. And rhetorical questions are fun things um, because they use the argument of the other person. It is so absurd that you don't wait for an answer. And um, these are, are Paul's three rhetorical questions. He said, is Christ divided? Do any one of you think that, that Christ is divided? Absolutely not. Was Paul crucified for you? Or name any teacher that you love? Absolutely not. Um, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And again, absolutely not. The, these rhetorical questions are arguing for irrationality. It's saying the vision in the church is irrational. Christ is all in all, and if you are God's child, you are in Christ, and Christ is in you. Um, and, and so this is, this is what, what Paul says. He, he, he argues that this, this church cannot be divided. Lastly, Paul puts himself up as an example um, in this text, and he does that more properly in uh, further chapters here. But he's, he was very careful in the way he participated in the sacraments and in baptism. He didn't baptize a lot of people when he planted this church. He didn't try to create this faction. Um, and he was careful in the way he preached not to do anything that would rob, that would steal from the cross and the power of the cross. So he says, I came to you not with words of eloquent wisdom. Now, Paul is not saying that he didn't seek to preach in a powerful or persuasive way. He is pointing out to the great philosophers, um, those who pride themselves in their wisdom, who pride themselves in the turn of a phrase, who pride themselves with, the, uh, with a power to persuade people, 
by the use of their language and their logic. And this is maybe a trap for the Alor. Maybe, maybe uh, anyone that's tertiary educated. We go to sermons um, and we expect lofty words and, and that novelty is what catches us more than what, what the core is of the message. So Paul says he does not do that. Paul says, I don't ever want to preach the gospel in a way that would draw attention to me because if, I, if I'm doing that, I'm robbing the cross of Jesus Christ, of its power. And here is maybe an exposition of what the cross is. I think it's very technical, but it's a very worthwhile uh, listen. It is, for me, almost put in a, in a high sense. It, it um, reduces it to its core elements. It reads, we have but one hope. It is the living reality of the cru- uh, crucified, risen Savior who suffered the effects of the fall. Living a perfect life, dying as the lamb of sacrifice, carrying our guilt and our shame, his righteousness being given over to our account, his sacrifice purchasing our adoption into the family of God, his resurrection conquering sin and death and guaranteeing for us eternal life. That is what we hold on to. Um, I want to bring one more thing out uh, from one of the other chapters, and I don't want to overstay there, but just just to show that that Paul really focuses on this idea of the gospel. Um, In this exposition of defending himself and defending uh, these factions, at a point he says the way you look at these apostles, these teachers, are as people of authority, but you misplace it. They are servants. They are lowly. And, and they are building. And so Paul says he builds this community, builds this church. And you are the stones of that church. Um, and then the way Paul uh, addresses this, he says, um, <clears throat> but we must build on a firm foundation. And he says when he laid the foundation, that was the, the cross, that was Christ that he preached. That is the foundation and from there on, he says, whatever anyone else builds on that, that is fine. That would be put to fire. That will be judged. And one of three outcomes is given. Either it will be proved good, or it will be proved neutral, or it will be proved destructive to the house of God, to the temple. And, um, but that judgment um, lies on those who build on top of that. Only do not build on another foundation than the gospel. That is what Paul teaches here. And we have a monument of bad foundation. I don't know a lot about foundations, but if we, we build foundations um, and we do a wrong bad job of it, your house will fall apart and you will see cracks and it's a disaster. But the monument is the Tower of Pisa, right? Um, the thing is falling over and they've done a lot to keep it in place and they had to go to the foundation and still now, they say, every 300 or so years, um, it will have to get more work because it wasn't done properly when they started it. If the Tower of Pisa is left to itself, it will fall, uh, fall over. It will break down. And so it doesn't matter how pretty the thing is. <clears throat> it doesn't matter what is built. If there is no foundation, then the whole will crumble. Um, so that is our message. 
So in closing, the most precious gift we have, and we must guard its purity, the mo- uh, we must rally around it with a unity of heart and unity of life, unwilling to let anything get in its way, is the message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And my question is, is this in your heart? Is, is Christ the most important thing in your life? Um, do you have the capacity to, to put him first, praying diligently, humbling yourself, um, to, put your, uh, to put those around you in light of the cross? And then also fighting for that. Um, there is more uh, tense things that, that, that will be said later in, in this book. Um, it's in this book. Maybe I'll throw this in as a, lo- a last point. Uh, anathema. You be cursed um, to, to anathema. That's the right way to pronounce it. Um, it's to shut you out of the church. We get that phrasing from 1 Corinthians right at the end of this letter. But I think Paul is very careful to use that to defend the gospel. Um, and you can go read that. I want to pray for us. Um, Lord, yeah, um, we cannot stand above the church of Corinth in self-righteous judgment because we have all these propensities. Um, we align ourselves with personalities. We often give ourselves to criticism and debate and slandering. Um, and we diminish your gospel. We're not always a picture of uh, remarkable love or persevering unity. Uh, Father and I, so I want to repent that, but at the same time I want to repent, or thank you rather, um, that you accept this repentance, that you are the Christ. And for your cross, that we... We can be thankful that we, as we stand before you, dirty and weak and broken, that we can be unafraid because all of our sins have been covered by your blood. And we can stand before you. Lord, I, I pray that we may draw close together and that you may draw us close together to worship and enjoy, to display this and display the power of the cross to others. I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.